I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How are you doing, podcasts? Adam Buxton here. And oh, look at this. What are we looking at? Let me tell you what I'm looking at out here in the Norfolk countryside. It's like a kind of special effect because on this day, Sunday, the 8th of November, as I speak, it is now coming up to 4.30. In an hour, it will be completely dark, but it's been a lovely mild, almost balmy day out here in the countryside. Very beautiful. And now that the evening chill is setting in, I guess the earth that has been warmed up by the sun is now making it misty in little localized patches that look like ghost areas. It's quite cool. Look, Rosie, the mist is chasing us from over there. There's just a big, weird patch of mist. And it's coming towards us. Let's run away. Run away. Come on, Rosie. Sorry, I didn't mean to freak you out. Rosie's looking at me now like, what is your problem? Do you want to go up the exciting hill where the cows usually are? I think the cows have gone away now for the winter. So we won't be antagonizing them. Yes. But let me tell you a bit about podcast number 138, which features a laughter and music-filled conversational ramble with frontman of Scottish band Travis, Fran Healy. Fran Facts, Fran, currently aged 47, grew up in Glasgow, Scotland, and joined Travis on the day he enrolled at the Glasgow School of Art in the autumn of 1991 having been invited to join by drummer Neil Primrose. Lineup changes. I love saying lineup changes because it makes me feel like a music journalist. And I'm really pulling the stops out with my music journalese in this intro. Lineup changes saw Fran's art school friend Dougie Payne joining as bass player. Andy Dunlop had been there from the start on guitar. Just open in the gate. Now the gate is closed. The band's second album, The Man Who, released in 1999 and featuring production from regular Radiohead producer Nigel Godrich, featured the singles Turn, Writing to Reach You, Driftwood and Why Does It Always Rain On Me. After initially slow sales, The Man Who ended up selling over 3.5 million copies around the world. That's so many copies. And turned Travis into a headline act, seemingly plastered across the cover of every UK music mag as the new millennium dawned. Their 2001 album, The Invisible Band, recorded once again with Nigel Godrich, also made it to the number one spot and contained more great, great hits. Sing, Side and Flowers in the Window. In 2002, various factors, including a nearly fatal spinal injury sustained by Neil Primrose, 
while jumping in a pool contributed to Travis taking a step back just as bands like Keen and most especially Coldplay were stepping up to snaffle the lion's share of the melodic guitar pop pie. I mean, this is great writing from Buckles. Every member of Travis ended up starting a family over the next few years, but they've never stopped touring and producing music, albeit in a way slightly more conducive to family life. Fran directed the documentary Almost Fashionable, released in 2018, which contained great performances of some of the band's best-loved songs, played to ecstatic fans in Mexico, interspersed with thoughts from music writers about why this gang of likeable Scots making tuneful and accessible music had the capacity to occasionally rub critics up the wrong way. My conversation with Fran was recorded face to socially distanced face in a London music studio back in early October of this year, just before I hosted a Q&A with the whole band, which was streamed live to their fans around the world to celebrate the release of their ninth studio album, Ten Songs. Rosie! Rosie, I'm going this way. Fly past from the hairy bullet. It was very good to see the Travis boys again. As you'll hear, we spent quite a bit of time hanging out at the end of the 90s and on into the early 2000s. And though I still see Dougie now and then, Fran has lived abroad for the last 15 years or so in places like New York, Berlin and now Los Angeles with his partner Nora and their son Clay. And it had been a long time since we'd caught up. We dealt with some of the slightly more grown-up topics of conversation while I was setting up my mics, but by the time I hit record, we were somewhere a bit more um, juvenile, and there was a smutty, smutty motif that ran through much of our conversation, just so you're aware. In case that's going to be an issue for you, there was quite a bit of onanistic chit-chat. Wanky chat. But there's also thoughts on creativity and the mysterious process of songwriting, why comedians and musicians like hanging out with each other, some pretty good name dropping, and a bit of resolution after a drunken row that got out of hand 15 years ago. Back at the end for a small helping of Waffle, but right now with Fran Healy, here we go. Is this the podcast? This is the podcast. <laughs> right, okay. So you don't have to answer this, but you know, nowadays, I don't know how it is in your house, but I find that sometimes, like after a certain age, when you've been with your partner for a long time, mm-hmm. you don't have quite as much sexy time as maybe you once did when you first met. Yeah. But maybe you still carry on having solo fun on a semi regular basis. It's the best fun to have. Sure, yeah. 
And it's convenient. It's easy to schedule. It's portable. Yeah. Have you ever had a situation where you've had some solo fun and that's all finished and then suddenly your partner makes it clear that actually there's a sexy time invitation on the table but you're not in a position to um, take up the offer all right um, because you've just finished your business yeah I've emptied the cistern (laughs) (laughs) flushed yeah Um, no no can you remember your first wank yes Although it wasn't a formal one, it wasn't a kind of manual one. What? With me, it's... Did you have one of those weird contraptions that you put over it? (laughs) A fleshlight. (laughs) What? It's called the fleshlight. Because it's like a... It looks like a a flesh-coloured torch with a kind of rubbery Mm -hmm. fanny on the end. So it's all portable. Right. The flashlight. Maybe it doesn't exist anymore, but there used to be adverts for them everywhere you went on the internet, or at least everywhere I went. <laughs> Pushing them towards you. Yes, you need this. Aha. Um, yeah. No, for me, my first experiences of that kind of thing, autoerotic joy, mm-hmm. were climbing up the rope at gym class. Andy talks about that. And when I saw Wayne's World... There's a line in there, and Garth says, It made me feel kind of funny, you know, like when you climb the rope at gym class. And I was like, Whoa! I thought that was just me. Mm, That's interesting. My one was a guy who was in our class at school. He was much taller than everyone else and much more mature. Mm -hmm. That's like primary seven, I think, which was 11 years, 12 years old. And you'd not get any thoughts even in your head at that point. But he came in one day and he's like, whoa, let me tell you something. And we were all sitting around the, the table and he's like, what? And then you just rub it. And then you... <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was like... And I, nice. I, was just, I was just in the background kind of nodding going... Mm-hmm. So that night, I was in my room. I thought, I'm going to give it a little rub. And... <laughs> and it suddenly I was like, wow. Spider-Man. Yeah. Except not out the hands. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It really does feel like a superpower. Yeah. No, it took me quite a while, I think, before I, I went the traditional route. Because after that, there was a quite a long period of sliding around on the... <laughs> in, the bath, in the bath. <laughs> on the bath. <laughs> on my front. Wow. When How the, old were you? I was pretty young, I think. I mean, I was way ahead of my time. Did you get pubes before all the other boys? Um, I certainly wasn't lagging behind. But no, there was a guy I remember seeing in the showers. And he, he, had, a, he had a man's knob. He must have been only... There's always one of them. Yeah. He must have been just 11 or 12. Yeah. And he had a bloke's, a grown man's knob. <laughs> It's like God's Photoshop. Yeah. I'm going to put that on him. I'm going to take, some, do you know, inversely, there's probably a guy, a grown man, somewhere with a child's. And he's like, why have I got this baby dick? Oh, my God. And I was absolutely fascinated by it, though. I remember thinking, like, holy shit, look at the equipment on this guy. And it was so bushy and big and I was like, 
Wow. And I didn't want it, though. I, I wasn't envious. No. <laughs> <laughs> but did you never go through a phase of feeling guilty and anxious about all that kind of thing? About what? Wanking? Yeah. No. No. No, well, no, no. I, I mean, I should have because I brought up a Catholic, but um, no, not at all. I was like, wow, this is the greatest thing that's, that's ever happened to me and probably still is to this day. <laughs> Better than, like, you know, getting a record deal. Or, <laughs> <laughs> nothing comes close, actually. It's the gift that keeps giving. Do you... Um, I find it hard to believe that there's people out there who don't ever, you know, mm -hmm. dabble. Sure. And there are. Absolutely. People and, abstain, don't they? Yeah. Who was I listening to the other day? I was listening to a podcast with Russell Brand, and mm -hmm. he was talking about the fact that he no longer pleasures himself. Why? Because he said, since he's had children, he has a daughter, I think, maybe more than one, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. He finds it too weird. He mm -hmm. thinks that it's strange to compartmentalize his sexuality in that way. He's not able to do it. So he finds it too creepy to be having wanky time on his own and thinking sexy thoughts and maybe looking at pictures of other people. And then going and being a more wholesome version of himself with his children. Mm. And so he's decided just to knock it on the head. Mm. Or at least he had done. This was 2018, I think, the podcast was from. But I thought, gosh, that's weird. Because that compartmentalization is a fundamental aspect of being a human being, really. It's part of the fun. Yeah, exactly. As you say, it's part of the fun. You know, you can be a different person if you're having consensual sex or you're on your own or whatever. You're indulging and you're working through various... Characters? Yeah, characters, <laughs> styles. <laughs> you know, maybe also you're working through stuff that you know is not really acceptable. I mean, um, I'm not, you know, well, it's not let's just that. assume I'm talking <clears throat> about stuff that is not totally beyond the pale. But maybe it's stuff that you would be embarrassed to do with your partner or I don't know what. <laughs> We're only, this is the very beginning of the podcast. But, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's what it, human sexuality is a mysterious thing. To put it simply, we're all kind of schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. We have our cerebral selves, which is where, what's his name? Um, Russell, Russell? Oh, yeah, Russell Brand. It's where Russell has gone. He's gone into his head, so he's thinking about it. And the monkey, because everyone's got the animal, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's the, your emotional core, and it's kind of the one that has these urges. I wouldn't say they're thoughts, because it's, it's a... An urge before you think, oh, I'm going to, you know, your, your mind clicks onto it. So um, I think you're, you've got two things and you have to satisfy both the animal and the cerebral part. So, you know, for the cerebral part, you might, I don't know, go and see a Radiohead concert. <laughs> and yeah. then the monkey part, you might want to go do see that. Travis. You might want to no, no. You might want to do that while you watch the radio. <laughs> I mean, whatever, like you say, whatever, yeah, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> Could you imagine just an audience of people? Kill two birds with one stone. All yeah. <laughs> oh, Someone must have had a wank at a Radiohead concert. <laughs> Absolutely on stage. <laughs> oh god here's the thing though you the first time i met you i was masturbating no 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 it was an indirect meeting because i saw your uh, sketch on big train 
Oh yeah, the wanking sketch, which is still one of the best sketches yeah, I know. ever. I like to take credit for it. I mean, I've said before, I've explained the situation before oh, go on. that Graham Linehan got in touch with us. He had been watching the Adam and Joe show, and he liked it. It was one of the first messages, one of the first emails I received from someone I didn't know, and it was so exciting. I was like, mm-hmm. "Oh my god!" And then he said, "Would you and Joe like to write some ideas for Big Train?" And we were like, yeah, sure. But they were, they were like two-line ideas, most mm-hmm. of them. you know. And one of them that I wrote was, what if wanking in the office was <coughs> like smoking? Or maybe I didn't even write that. Maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. But it was basically wanking in the office. Yeah. And I, I think I wrote something else about it being just, you know, a very banal part of office life okay. and scheduling a wank with the secretary and that kind of thing. And then Graham and Arthur took it in a different direction and then Simon and all the rest of the cast improvised very brilliantly with it but I still take credit for the sketch so that was the first time I was aware of you but without realising you were part of that yeah you you guys were into all that stuff because mm. I remember in The Man Who on the sleeve notes I think you did a thank you to to Big Train to Big Train yeah. right I found it so high minded back then I didn't know it was Graham Linehan who'd done Father Ted and, and then he went on to Black Books after that yes. and, and then obviously I met him through you and he's just this he's so smart and again through you and through other comedians you realise I realised oh comedians are actually the smartest people that you can kind of meet, you know, all the guys that go I'm around. And they, but you, you, you kind of are, you know. You, I would never, yeah. like, I hate going out with comedians on a night out because you just get absolutely ripped to bits. It's horrific and it's funny. You just daren't open your mouth, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Do you think that? But oh, comedians are all in awe of musicians, though. <gasps> Isn't that weird? Yeah. Why is that? Um, because they envy that ability to express themselves in a sincere way without having to constantly deflect everything with humor Hmm. that's my theory i just made that up Hmm. but it's got to be something about that it's got to be something about that level of authenticity and not having to make everything funny i just envy the ability that you have and people like you have to write a song to express an emotion without having to lean on humor I, i can't even conceive of how you would begin to do that to evoke a sincere feeling. Yeah, I think that's it. I think comedians are really cerebral. and um, But the funny bone people like Stan Laurel, Chaplin, for instance, Buster Keaton, all the original guys, they're quick. There's a quickness to them. And as I guess I've, over the years, I'm so attracted to that, more than musicians, actually, because this quickness it's like real watching people doing magic in front of you when they're not just reading a joke off a sheet they're they're just funny people like you say funny boned people yeah it's super smart it's a nice relationship though because everyone gets something out of it they like hanging around with the musician because can we do lots of name dropping in this conversation yeah sure love it I love it (laughs) (laughs) and actually you know if we have time and if we feel mentally able Mm -hmm. we could even go a little bit deep into why I might love name dropping so much and what bearing it might have on a big row that you and I once had is this ringing any bells we only had one row yeah the row at the wedding oh that was a row yeah man well okay yeah well yeah well, we've teased it. We'll build towards it. 
That was a row. That was a massive row. <laughs> you shouted at me. You made me cry. Mate. Let's don't go there don't later. spoil it. <laughs> don't spoil the row. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, okay, name dropping. I met Ben Stiller because you brought him along to a show. Was that a Travis show? We were at the no Brixton Academy. Uh, and who were we seeing? I have no idea. We went to see someone. Maybe it was Weezer or... Pixies? Maybe Pixies, yeah. That might be right. Okay. And so I think I knew that I was going to meet you, but then maybe you phoned up beforehand, pre-texting days, mm-hmm. and said, can I bring my friend Ben Stiller? I was like, yeah, all right. And how did you know him? I can't remember that. I mean, I literally have no... No recollection. It must have been that. around 2003, four. Yeah. yeah anyway, I remember sitting around and chatting a little bit beforehand and being immediately struck by how kind of intense Ben was as a person. Like he's got quite a cerebral aspect. He's got that, he's, I guess it's, it's that thing that there's a seriousness. Mm. Like I say, that there is that a lot of comedians and musicians we're different than we are on stage. Mm-hmm. We go on stage and we turn ourselves inside out almost. And I think he's no exception. But as a fan, you expect someone to be... Yeah. I mean, I've met lots of comedians who I expect to be the same as they are. And some are, like Ricky Gervais is. He's probably even more outrageous in, in person than he is <laughs> when he's on stage. And he is outrageous on stage as well. But a lot of guys go back to normal again. Mm-hmm. They put their normal thing on. And they... They listen. That's what I've noticed a lot about like people like that. They're quiet. They just sort of they're they're just taking it in and listening. Filling the chuckle tank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hoovering it all up <laughs> in order to spew it out later. Um that's quite nice though, isn't it, for you to have these people that you like and admire be attracted to you. Yeah, it's it's it is it's really cool. Because you went like tell me at any point. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I don't really want to talk about that. Oh, right. That's just okay. a bit too tacky. But I couldn't believe, I remember sometime early in the 2000s, you went on holiday with Billy Connolly. Yeah. The very cool thing about that little episode, um, it was Billy's 60th birthday. Mm-hmm. He had a birthday in, in Scotland and we'd gone to that. And that was like an amazing thing, the big event. Because he is like a British superhero. Mm-hmm. Billy's just, um, first of all, one of the greatest storytellers ever and observers of life and points you know, the mirror back at everyone and it just explains things. That's what great stories and humour and songs and all that, it, it fills in the blanks and with him, you're laughing but then you come away and you've, it sticks. You've learned something mm-hmm. about maybe yourself. I mean, I'm so starstruck I can't not ever ever not be starstruck around him because he's the o- one of the only people I can't not lose that with I just he's just got this effect on me anyway so he's that and then we went to his birthday and up in their castle he had a castle up with them in the middle of Scotland and people were coming in from everywhere for it it was a, an amazing event there was it was like serious living Madame Tussauds I was sitting next to Moon Unit and Dweezil uh, Zappa Two of my favourite sods right there. <laughs> Two sods. <laughs> I, the thing is, I, I really don't like all of that. Yeah. And it, and it was a little bit too much for, for me. And I, so I, I just went and found a room and just went and sat in this room and, and hid. <laughs> and it was a two-day thing. So I had to leave the room and go to bed and things. And I, I go back to that room the next day just to not be in. It's just too much. 
Uh-huh. So I'm sitting in the room. It was this very nice, like a reading or a drawing room or whatever. I was sitting in this big sort of armchair with my back to the door and I'd been there for hours and hours just just having a nice chill and be by myself. Like about four hours in, door opens and I'm like, and door closes and then clip, clip, and it's Billy. And he's like, the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, I don't, I can't. And he's like, oh, me too. <laughs> and he went there to escape as well. And he had the exact same thing. And it might be being from Glasgow or being Scottish. or I think he struggles with that as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, sh- he could have sorted that by not inviting those people. Well, yeah, but I think there's Billy and Pamela, yeah. you know, and Pam's, a, Pam's amazing. She's the kind of organiser. She's the, the light bulb in mm-hmm. the room. And Billy, very quiet, like me, and he, he likes his own company. And Pamela's the kind of, come on, everyone, let's have a party. Let's, you know, get everyone together and mix and mingle. And it's very much her thing. Yeah. Um, but that was that. And then a few months later, we got a phone call from, I think it was Pam, She's like, we're going, would you, do you want to... Holiday time. <laughs> Where'd you go? Centre parks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We went to Fiji. Holy shit. Um, it was just the whole, like, the, the whole trip there was just surreal. But I remember feeling slightly like um, just a, a deer caught in the headlights. Yeah. And um, <laughs> you, you probably got back to the UK and then just were ill for five weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. I'm not... See, the thing is, I, I've not really... I'm not a, I'm not into that. I'm not into that sort of the thing. hobbing and the nobbing. Not really, no. And I always had a bit of a weird inverse chip with fame and being this guy, you know, mm-hmm. this famous person. Well, let's talk about that <laughs> <laughs> because I met you guys when you were on the cusp of all that. Yeah. And me and Joe were having our makeup done for a photo shoot and it was I guess 1999 and I remember meeting Nora and she was doing our makeup for this photo shoot I remember that and we got talking and she said oh my boyfriend's in a band I was like oh yeah and she said "Uh, they're called Travis and they've got a record coming out quite soon it's called The Man Who I was like oh yeah cool and weirdly I think the same week I was in HMV and the DJ played. He was like, this is the new one from Travis. Uh, it's called Driftwood. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is the band that Nora was talking about. I was like, oh, cool. That sounds good. And then you came to our party. Yeah. You and Dougie. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we had that? a TX party when our mm-hmm. show went out. It was the third series, I think. And we went and had a big party in a place called the TARDIS. Yes. Up in Farringdon, the yeah. venue where a lot of artists worked and you could hire it out. And it was good fun. And there was lots of musicians there. I think I've told this story before. But Marky e. Smith and The Fall came because they'd been on the show. We invited them. We never thought they would come. And, and the day before, no, actually that afternoon, the afternoon of the party, our producer said, oh, I just got a call from Mark Smith. And he said that he's going to come and bring a few members of the band. I was like, oh, my God. I was terrified that he was just going to cause havoc and (laughs) run around beating up my posh friends, (laughs) (laughs) which he didn't. He was really nice. But you'd done something with him on that. We did a vinyl justice thing with him. I found that the other day. I found that whole shoot 
I've got it. I've got a, Nora filmed all of it. You come into the door and she was like a fly on the wall filming you filming us. Yeah, because we did a thing with you for our fourth series. Right. And I'm not sure we ever used it in the end mm. because it was we were doing a pilot mm-hmm. and the pilot didn't work out the way we wanted. <laughs> but you very nicely helped us out and did a thing. What was it called? Uh, it was like a Vinyl Justice variant with videos. So we went round uh, the TV detector van. That's oh, what it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and Joe were dressed up like TV detectors and we raided your house. <laughs> That's right. And you and Andy and <laughs> Doug and, <laughs> and Neil were sat there and, and we talked about what TV you watched and we all sang Going for Gold. That's right. Going well, for Gold. The heat is on. The time is right. right. It's time for you, for you to play your game. Join join in whenever you want. People are coming. (laughs) Everyone's trying, trying to do the best that they can. I remember it was Andy who was most um, (laughs) into that because he was the king of daytime TV at that time. That's right. And there was a lot of chat about Dusty Bin and that kind of thing. Anyway, so... So we were back at the, yeah, the TARDIS, you came along, and that was the first time that we met. And then we spent quite a lot of time together for the next few years, really. Mm. We became good friends very fast. You you came to America when we recorded the Invisible Band. That's right. I remember being in the bar before we started recording and going, oh, this is going to be like, whether it was going to work out or not. Nigel hadn't arrived yet. He was just coming off a kitty. Nigel Godrich. Yeah. Radiohead's producer, and he produced The Man Who. Yeah. 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 So he produced The Man Who with a, with a couple of other people involved, but this was going to be solely Nigel. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were waiting on him, I think, in some bar on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, that was incredibly exciting. It was for all of us, wasn't it? It was like a sort of this kind of mad, what's going on here? And that must have been when, 2000? 2000, yeah. So that was the year that you had broken through by that time the man Mm. who came out and was a bit of a sleeper hit Mm -hmm. and then you did the glastonbury performance it started raining and and Mm. everything kind of coalesced until i think in 2000 you were on the cover of q and Mm -hmm. cover of pretty much every music magazine yeah it was mental and then you almost immediately started experiencing a little bit of a backlash Mm. and what did that feel like Um, when i say backlash i don't mean it wasn't like horrible and vicious no, but no. i remember you were so ubiquitous yeah it was too much the face magazine had a little i hate travis i badge, hate travis badge which i wore on my cap right forever because i kind of kind of liked it i thought it was quite cool to be that the band had gotten that sort of big that we'd flipped into the the other side of it like yeah. you say so quickly that's not something that bothers me too much never really got in my nerves it got more I think maybe uh, later on, because by that time, yeah, the Invisible Band we were still we were still riding on the Man Who Crest of a Wave type of thing, and that uh, the Invisible Band did well because of the Man Who, and that it, it, it was the tsunami was still rolling. Mm-hmm. And then when everything settles down and the next bands come through, and you just go back to sort of being in a band and touring and doing normal things, and you lose your force field, and everyone starts the, the vultures start coming in. That that can get a little bit like get a bit personal. We just made like the last thing we did before this record a documentary about us called Almost Fashionable, and um, I got a critic to come, a guy who didn't like us, to come on the road with us, 
and to sort of cover it to try and figure it out you know like what what is it yeah what is it that winds up critics especially about travis and what were his conclusions (laughs) well the gamble was i always think i've always thought that the travis that was projected Mm -hmm. because you've got no control over that i'm always a little bit jealous of bands who seem to be able to control it i mean radiohead's control of their optic is just amazing i don't know if they do that deliberately or it's just that's just them or whatever but we've, we've just it's been totally you can't really control that i don't think but I always found that the distortion of what we are and what I knew us to be to what was on the other side of it was so different. And um, I couldn't figure that out. Like, what's there not to like? We're, we're not horrible. And the music's not terrible. So this guy coming in, I wanted to see. And, and sure enough, like, very quickly, he realises that, that this band here are not the same as that band there. But we, I think the big thing that I think rubs a lot of people up is that we're nice. This word, this horrible word, nice. Mm-hmm. And I think being Scottish, people are quite light-hearted there and we have this lightness about us and people are nice. Mm-hmm. And But it's not, an, it's not a bad word, you know? Yeah. But I think that, that sort of wound with folk up. Well, I think uh, traditionally the, the whole paradigm for a certain type of rock music, yeah. especially credible authentic I, I overuse the word authentic mm-hmm. but that kind of thing especially for critics it's got to be authentic it's got to be grimy and dark it's yeah. got to be angsty it's got to be a cry of pain a shout of rage mm-hmm. those are the quintessential statements of rock music a certain type of music and even though there were elements of that in Travis's mm-hmm. music you know mm-hmm. you get that thrill that visceral thrill from a lot of your songs mm. all i want to do is rock and the, the big shouting screaming. there and yeah. yeah but the fact that it was so accessible a lot of it and then the man who is just this lovely lush sounding thing i suppose inoffensive is a word that you could attach to it mm-hmm. because it didn't jar it wasn't grating it mm-hmm. was easy to like mm-hmm. it was very melodic and, and it, it sold almost three million copies right that's the thing that really is the irritating part isn't it for a certain type of critic but again you 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 don't have control over that and you find yourself going oh but yeah the in the doc we interviewed critics um pete pifades is brilliant in it he nails it completely and other journalists talk about exactly what you're saying what's the new what's the story what's the new story and we didn't want to play that game so neither did they so they almost grudgingly had to follow and Everything was playing their songs. They were like, oh, okay, Travis, 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 right? But anyway, yeah, it was a mad time. Yeah. Mad. Mm. At this point, yes. how do you feel about playing a song? Yeah. Just to remind us what we're dealing with. I'm going to swing my mic around <clears throat> onto your guitar. Oh, yeah. Ready? Do you know what I'm going to play? Out of space. No. Be not afraid 
help is on its way It's not shade This ends like a veil Under a sail lovely is that 12 memories no that was the invisible band that oh was, that's the invisible band that's why i was playing it because that was one of the songs we were recording when when you were out that time. yes in ocean way how amazing it was to be in ocean way oh it's a brilliant studio so for people that don't know put it in context a little bit ocean way is a studio in los angeles where we recorded the invisible band with nigel godrich in 2000 and it's a really amazing studio because well it's an old studio it's got a lot of history Frank Sinatra did a lot of recording there everyone it was one of those very very busy studios back in the day wrecking crew that sort of thing those guys were jumping in and out of those studios Beach Boys were there weren't they um yeah all the thing is all of these bands were in and out of all of those studios because they go back to the the 50s uh, and 60s. It's a cool place and it's all wood panelled, vaulted yeah. ceilings, yeah. like everywhere in Los Angeles when the sun goes down, low lit, lots yeah. of fairy lights. Yeah. Because when I went out there, I think you were coming towards the end of the sessions mm-hmm. and I went out there with my video camera uh-huh. and I filmed, I think I filmed more or less the whole of Sing coming together. You've got that on? Yeah. Have- <gasps> I think so. I've got a lot of it. That's great. That's, you, that's ama- I would love to see that. I'll I've, swap you um, TV detectives for, right. for that. Okay, cool. I know I digitized it recently. It was lovely watching it again. Wow. And I thought, wow, this is great. And there's one bit, because you recorded a lot of it in the round. Yeah, well, Neil's behind the glass. Yeah. Because the drum spill was too loud. It would go in the mics. But yeah, live. That's what Nigel's thing is. You know, gets everyone playing yeah. live. And, and then um, you had, <laughs> I remember you saying that you had another alternate lyric for Sing. What was that? Which really? was... Oh, God. Lately you've been going so crazy. Lately you've, you've been, been going, going so crazy. Yeah. Lazy, I've been driving Miss Daisy. That's right. <laughs> what a terrible lyric. You know, but this is what you're, this is the thing that... I, I read a nice um, article, Tom York was talking about... Um, at the moment, there's, there's 20 years or 25 years since Kid A mm-hmm. 
20 years Must since Kitty. 20, yeah. yeah. And um, at the time he wrote, uh, he did something with Q or one of these magazines where he said he just hates all melody, makes him feel so uncomfortable and, and just didn't like it. And the thing is, I know that feeling because that's the feeling that you have to go through to find a good melody. And at the end of it, and Tom's one of the, the, I think, in my opinion, greatest rock melody writers. But he, that process of writing shit like that, like, I mean, it just it comes out and you, you just have to take it and go, oh, and realise that, you know, you're only as good as the, the shittest thing that you ever wrote. <laughs> so you're, you're always going to be shit, but you need to eat that humble pie. You have to do that to grind down your ego until it's, it's just decimated and then... Just beyond that is the wee thing that you want, you know, a little bit of gold or the diamond or whatever you want to call it. Do you have a memory of a time when a song came easily and pleasurably and you were pleased with the result? A simple birth? Mm. I think Sing's a good example of that. Mm. That was like watching MTV with the sound turned down, just looking at the pictures and there was some thing about swing beat and I was playing this thing and I was like, if you swing... Swing, swing, swing. Oh, that's quite good. Swing, swinging in a swing with your like this feeling when you're in the park when you're little. So I went into the studio the next day and I'm going to the guys, check this out. If you swing, and Dougie immediately like swing. You're writing a song about swinging. I'm like, oh yeah, right, okay. <laughs> My mind was all on the park and going wee. Dougie was chucking his keys in the bowl <laughs> and I'm having a dinner party somewhere in Gifnock. Um, so then I thought, well, yeah, well, what if we changed it to sing? But that came like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to you before we started recording about how things changed for you when you became a father mm-hmm. and when your priorities shifted away from feeling that you had to write songs all the time more to just being a dad. Yeah. But now, well, tell me about the conversation you had with Clay. Yeah. Well, we were we were talking about how I was sitting at the, the piano about, it was about a year and a half ago and Clay came in and he's like, oh, Papa, I think you, I, I, you should do the band. I think I'm done. I'm good, you know, because uh, we'd been talking uh, maybe a week earlier about um, life with the band. I don't go on the road and don't, you know, I sort of don't do the whole away for weeks and weeks and weeks because I wanted to be here and be a dad and, and put my thing into you. and That sounds sexy. <laughs> put my thing into you. Put reverb on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he, he, was, he was like, all right. And I think at that point he was, I don't know, he came back a week later and he's like, no, you know, and, and I'd said in some interview the other day, it's like Pinocchio kind of getting off the, the, the workbench and being like, right, just stop sanding. I'm good. I can walk, look. Um, go back and start making your sideboards again, uh-huh. Geppetto. So I feel like I've, I'm able to fully like concentrate. I feel like I've gotten quite cool songs come through. Has uh, the process of writing songs changed no over change, the years? No. Still like pulling teeth. Still like pulling teeth. Yeah. Do you know that film, um, There Will Be Blood? Yeah, man. That's a great film, right? Yeah. Bastard in a basket. (laughs) Yes. I love that. And uh, he's down that hole at the beginning. Yeah, man. And he's just like, he's got his pickaxe and he's whacking the thing. And then he puts the wee bit of 
dynamite and goes up, blows it up, comes back down, breaks his leg. And that to me, watching that's this that's the creative process. You're in this <laughs> hole and you're chipping away and it's so boring and there's nothing creative about it. Which is the creative part then for you? Once you get the wee germ of the idea, whether it's if you swing, swing, the rest of it just comes out very quickly and everything just fills itself in. And when doing that, when you get that, when that happens, that's the addictive part of, you want that, You so once you get that song done, you want to try again, so you start digging again. Because really there is, when a song finds you, and I don't think you find the song, I think it reveals itself to you. I think that's the feeling, you're finding something that was there already, you're just you remember in Scooby Doo when they throw the paint over the Invisible Man, mm-hmm. and you're like, "There he is!" And the guy's like, "You rascal kids!" That's to me. The songs are, are are they're not even songs, but stories and things are just out there floating about. And your job is just to sit. If you're quiet enough and kind of uh, still enough, then they come. They come yeah. to you. I think a song is just trying to bubble up. <laughs> <laughs> What's it called? <laughs> you know, I've tried, I try and write songs because I love I mean, the song, songs maybe is too grand a word for them. They're jingles. But I do try and write jingles. And man, during the lockdown, holy Moses, how many songs about biscuits can I write? It's just, I'm so literal minded. All I can do is write songs about my everyday routine. How do you manage to abstract? your way of thinking to the extent that you can write about a feeling, you, you can evoke a feeling. Literally, all I, I just wrote a song about a tea towel the mm-hmm. other day that wasn't very absorbent. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. Because you, well, that's, the, that's the two ways of writing. One is designing and one is divining. And at its best, it's a, it's a combination of both. The Beatles would, there's that funny story, or not funny story, cool story about them um, in the back of the car and they need to write a song tomorrow because they're going in to do a session or they're doing the album, they're one song short. And um, Lennon's like, oh, you, what are you going to write the song about? And Carl's like, uh, I'll write it about what you're doing there. And he's got a book and he's like, okay, I'll, I'll write. And he wrote Paperback Writer. Just to, he used that thing. So he's he's designing. But there's also the divining thing, which is he woke up singing yesterday or the melody for yesterday. It just was there. It's like howling or something and, and it just kind, kind of comes out. So you have to just try and switch your brain off. Because whenever I've tried to write a serious song, and I have a few times, like if I'm feeling sad, for example, I've noticed in times where I felt really sad and lonely and desperate that music mm. definitely is a comfort, massive comfort. Mm. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if I could write a song in this moment that would cheer me up, mm-hmm. also capture some part of the essence of this feeling and turn it into art? Anyway, it's fucking impossible. But, but you're almost there. It's just the difference is you're, I think it's a lyric thing. So forget about language for a second because language is like the very last part of the whole process. But just sitting and making noises and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I really hate anyone who can hear me writing. It's so embarrassing because you're, you sound like you're speaking in tongues a little bit. Like, and at some point, if you lose your mind a little bit and you just, or you're recording it and something happens and it's, there's no lyrics, there might be a, maybe a lyric there, but you're just waiting for this moment and it, then it might come or it might not. But usually it doesn't. Usually it's just, most of the time, it's um, driving Miss Daisy. 
and it's horrible and you, and that feeling is just you just feel like shit most of the time and that's why I, I really hate songwriting I really do but like. you must love the <laughs> result though aren't, aren't you, you must love all those children that you've brought into the world those musical <laughs> children because I, they're yeah. wonderful I was listening yeah. to your stuff <laughs> I mean your stuff pops up a lot on my phone anyway mm-hmm. and it's always welcome when it does and then knowing that I was going to see you, I made a playlist on Spotify, which I will put in the description of this podcast of some of my favorite Travis songs. Mm-hmm. Apart from the fact that they remind me of a very happy time hanging out with you guys, there really is a special thing that they do, which is, apart from being melodic and accessible, there's a vulnerability to them and a sweetness to them mm-hmm. that is wonderful and made me very emotional listening to them. And you must be proud of those that you've created those things which affect people that way? Yeah. I was thinking about it the other day and it was um, in LA when you're in your car because you spend a lot of time driving around and there's a lot of you know, dicks in other cars <laughs> who will flip you off and shout at you through their window. And what's happening there, you know when someone does that road rage issue mm-hmm. and you, I get really, really, it makes me so, cramps me up, I get really sad or, and, and angry as well obviously. But you get so sad so what's actually happening there is they're going, fuck you, you fucking... Uh, and then you get to feel how they feel. That energy or whatever it is, it's like they've taken a spoonful of themselves and gone, here, taste this spoonful of shit. And you're like, that's disgusting. But you're tasting how they feel, right? Yeah. And this is how I try and square that so I don't need to own it because it's not how I feel. At that moment, I've just tasted them, and it's horrible. So you are spooning your musical shit into the <laughs> yeah into the mouth. No, I'm spooning angel. Ears. You can spoon shit, or it, it, it could be angel delight. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, but the same thing applies with songs. You, yes. you, when you write a song, it's there and it comes out, and you get this lovely feeling of its arrival that you've, it's landed on you or it's discovered you or you've discovered it or whatever it is you want to call it. But there it is and you get this amazing, oh, there's no feeling honestly like it apart from when you hear a song that connects to you and it's weird and magical and like um, addictive, like nothing you've ever, um, it's better than wanking. I mean, not it's about the only thing about just a bit better, maybe just a wee bit better than wanking. Um, not much, but it's just got the edge. A lot um, of it is very similar to wanking as well. Yeah, on you the sit artist. at the end of your bed, <laughs> you pull out your instrument, you start strumming gently at first. Yeah, and then and then you build to the climax. <laughs> anyway, we've done this already, but mm-hmm. I'm afraid we've already laid the foundations. Mm-hmm. for the argument story. Oh, go on. The row. Yeah, we had a bad row. We've spoken about this since, right? Yeah. yeah. The day after. We spoke about it the day after <laughs> and since then. You tell the story and I'll interject if I think you've got anything wrong. Or would you rather I told it? I was thinking about this the other day because we were really drunk. Yep. I, mean, I was thinking, sorry, just to preface, I don't think I've ever been so drunk since. Yeah. And I think I, it just isn't part of my life now. I, it's not possible physically for me to get that hammer. I don't think any don't, of us I wouldn't want to. did that even then. It was just one of those nights that, that was long. It was a sustained... Yeah, it was a long day. 
a very, very long uh, sustained drinking session that just went on and on and, and, and culminated in an explosive finale. Mm. And as I can remember, it, uh, it was Simon Pegg's wedding. Simon and Maureen were getting married and it uh, was 2005? Could be. And we all went to the, to the thing. And um, I don't know how to tell this story. There's, there's well, one of the foundations you need to set in place is that among the guests were Gwyneth Paltrow mm-hmm. and, Chris and Chris Martin. Right. So we all went to the, the wedding and it was lovely. Yeah, and then, it really was. And then we went to the, the after party thing and then we went into the party and I can't remember much else. And then we, me and you were sitting on a chair and there was a... A girl there. I don't know who it was. It, it was, wasn't Gwyneth Paltrow. It was definitely not. They, they'd gone. And then you were, <laughs> you were like, you fucking prick or something. You said something really not nice. You, you, you called me a, a, like a fucking wank, you're a fucking wanker or something like that. And I was like, what? And he's like, do you know what I'm talking about in the church today? And I, rem- I knew exactly what you were, and I felt really self-conscious about this one moment which was we were in the church at the end of the wedding. It was really nice. And Gwyneth and, and Chris were there. And we used to go and we'd hang out every now and then. So we were like, they were like, oh, hi. And everyone had evacuated from the, the church. And we were just standing, chatting and going, oh, la, la, la. And they were like, we're going to go out this door. Out the back. Out, out the back door. And I was like, oh. And so I was caught in this moment of normal people superstars and I didn't they were like come on and I was like it was almost like the bit where someone's like here have some meth (laughs) (laughs) you're like I don't really but I don't really want to hurt your feelings and okay (laughs) so we went into their car or whatever and drove off special door they wanted to avoid the paps yeah so I went out and you (laughs) you were like you and it was just it felt and it was had you done that with just me but it was this other, the girl that was sitting, that I was so embarrassed that you embarrassed me in front of this girl. I, I got up and I left. And my feelings were absolutely <laughs> fucking destroyed. And um, I was getting in the taxi and you came out and you're like, what are you doing? And you were like, really aggressive. I'd never seen you so aggressive before. And I was like taken aback and I, I just started crying. Um <laughs> Because someone was shouting at me like a grown-up. Like mm-hmm. you suddenly became a grown-up. And you're like, and I can't remember what you said. And, and I was like, and, and we sort of made up there and then. I think we just were drunk or whatever. And, and that was that. And then you came in the next day and that was that. But, well, damn. That is not exactly the way I remember it. Oh, right. I mean, those are the basic facts. Yeah, yeah. I said at the beginning that I, you know, was going to tell the story because it kind of tied in with me encouraging you to do a lot of name dropping in this podcast. <laughs> and the thing is that I think that, you know, part of the fun of going and hanging out with you guys in those days was that it was like, wow, this is what it's like. I got to see secondhand what it was like to be in kind of A-list company. There were stars <laughs> coming and going and, you know, Noel Gallagher might turn yeah, yeah, up. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was it was amazing tagging along with you guys. Yeah. And it was fascinating for me. I had a, quite an unhealthy interest mm-hmm. in that side of celebrity and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, you know. So even though it wore off a little bit and I got used to it and I adjusted to it and I saw that, okay, it's not all like that mm-hmm. and, and a lot of it's bullshit. 
but there was still quite a lot of that residual fascination with that world there. Mm -hmm. And I think it used to just get peaked every now and again. Yeah. And that was one of those days when it did, when I saw, it was like, oh, Gwyneth. And it was kind of like, <laughs> wow, this is kind of weird and crazy and fun. Mm -hmm. But I also knew you very well. Yeah. And so I felt as if I was able to tease you about it. Oh, yeah. And you wouldn't get upset because I thought you understood that, of course, I, know. I love you. And of course, I don't really think that you're shallow at all. And, no. um, and I was showing off. I was showing off. Look at me. I'm teasing my famous friend about going with the other famous people. I'm Mr. Celeb Bance guy. <laughs> oh, dear. I was hammered. My judgment was all off. My timing was all off. Everything. All the, all the <laughs> dials were going Your wrong. voice still echoes in my head going, you Fucking I, ca wanker. I can't believe I said that. And if I did, it, it was, was like, supposed to be a joke. No, but it was... I think what I was doing <gasps> was taking the piss out of someone who would genuinely think that. I was taking the I piss know. out of a, a twat. I know, I know. The thing is, I know that I, now. You know, yeah. I, and I knew that as soon as you came out and you shouted. <laughs> but again, the shouting was... thing, though, the shouting thing, I'll tell you exactly what that was because I do remember that bit, mm -hmm. was that you were not making sense by that point. You were yeah. really fucked off. And really drunk, we were both hammered, and you wanted and to snap me out of it. Yeah, we were That's just it, not. But it was communicating. No, yeah, it was necessary. But it, it's like it was amazing. It was like a a moment. Well, it was like I think I remember my dad getting angry with us when we were little, and you know, suddenly if there was just too much noise and too much Do hysteria, he would just that? suddenly now stop doing that now, <laughs> and it would just be like whoa, okay. <laughs> You know, and, and, and I was trying to talk to you and you were sort of a bit teary and hysterical. You were like, no, but you meant that. And, and you do, you know, you th and you were making valid criticisms and you were pointing out quite rightly that I'd been a, a tit. <laughs> but you weren't listening. I was trying to apologize and I, I was know. saying, listen, man, I'm so sorry. And I didn't mean that. And you know, I love you. But you I was already listening. there. I know. I was gone. So I was at in a, my... a certain point, I was just like, okay. I love you, Adam. I love you too, man. And I'm sorry for <laughs> shouting at you. And I'm sorry for doing that stupid joke. And I'm sorry for being such a shallow, starstruck tit. Let's have a wank. Come on, then. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, I would love you to play another song because yeah. it would be lovely just to have one, um, one okay. to wrap the whole thing up. <clears throat> um. Okay. Um, I don't know. Butterflies. Chasing butterflies by the water. Watching airplanes because you got it inside. Inside everything is wrong Outside Ooh, outside You keep your eyes on the prize And your head and your hands up You can't see the wood for the trees Even when all the leaves are gone 
an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON. 
to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. And put my thing into you. Hey, welcome back, podcats. Well, you know, he said that I should put some reverb on that line, so that's what I did. Fran Healy there. I'm very grateful to Fran and uh, the rest of the band and to Samantha Scott for all her help organizing things that day. Much appreciated. As I said, I have put together a Spotify compilation of some of my favorite Travis tracks, and I've kind of stayed away on the whole from the really big ones in an effort to take a more offbeat route into their music. The thing about Travis is that you've got, as well as the big anthems, you've got a lot of really lovely, engaging, arty pop songs in there, which is kind of my favourite music. And, uh, you know, my friend Dougie from the band has very similar taste to mine. Lots of Bowie and arty pop and you can hear that in some of Travis's stuff so anyway link in the description of the podcast to that Spotify playlist I hope you check it out and enjoy it and maybe discover a few things that you weren't aware of before so how's things podcasts hope you're doing all right oh wow a bat hello bat flitting around probably shitting and pissing on my head There's a couple of bats, actually probably more than a couple, that live in the barn where I work. And in the big barn, in the main area, is where I've got various musical instruments set up. Whoa, there's so many bats out here. There's about ten or something flitting around. I'm walking down in the gloaming and walking next to some trees and bushes. And all the bats are just coming out and flitting. But yeah, in the barn, this is the time of year. Actually, it's coming towards the time of year where they go back to sleep again, I think. But for the last couple of months, they've been partying every night, which means every day I have to hoover up all their um, bat turds and wipe away the wee-wee. Batwee. The batwee is actually potentially corrosive to metal, so I've got to cover up all the symbols and things like that. Beautiful bats. Anyway, whoa! <laughs> Big pheasant just flew out of the undergrowth. I was in mental bat mode though, so I thought it was a bat, and I was just thinking, fucking hell, that's a big bat. It's exciting, though. This is why Rosie likes this time of night. It is, I reckon we've got about 10 more minutes of visibility left before we are plunged into total darkness. Rosie, come on, we should head back. Totally ignoring me. Anyway, look, podcasts, before I go today, I just wanted to give a plug for a thing. I don't know the people involved, but it looked like a good thing. Portraits 
for NHS heroes. Earlier in the year, during the first lockdown, everyone was celebrating the frontline workers and the NHS doctors and nurses and clapping every evening and all that kind of thing. But now it seems with the second lockdown, everybody's a little more pissed off and it's more controversial and more political and perhaps some of the focus has come off the people who are still working so hard in the NHS, even though, of course, the lockdown is really all about the NHS in some ways. But, of course, this year has just reminded us of what we should have known all along, which was, and what we did know all along, which was how important these people are and how grateful we are to them. And so this uh, NHS Portraits for Heroes book has been put together in that spirit. Here's the blurb. At the start of the lockdown, artist Tom Croft decided to pay tribute to our amazing NHS workers by painting a portrait of NHS nurse Harriet Durkin for free and encouraged other artists to do the same. You can see over 13,000 of these submissions on Instagram with hashtag portraits for NHS heroes, but they have also now been compiled into a book with Bloomsbury Publishing. It's coming out on the 12th of November and the royalties go to NHS charities. They're kind enough to send me a copy and the portraits are really fantastic. It's not like kind of amateur scribbles. I think these are all professional portrait artists or many of them are anyway. And there's just an incredible wealth of talent and different styles of um, art going on really brilliant portraits of these people in in all kinds of different states some with their masks on and their surgical gowns on some of them uh, in various emotional states it's really a beautiful thing at the very least a good way to remember this year and and so much of what it was all about link in the description of the podcast that's it for this week thank you very much indeed once again to Fran and to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for production support to Matt Lamont for conversation editing and to Helen Green for podcast artwork thanks to Acast for their continued hard work and support but most especially thank you very much to you for listening to another episode I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you're doing all right out there. Until next time, for goodness sake, take care. And if there isn't any available, just nick someone else's. No, don't do that. Have some of mine in audio hug form. Oh, look, fireworks. And don't forget, I love you. Thumbs up.